Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 4. So we continue our study through this book of the New Testament, James chapter 4. Today we'll look at verses 7 to 10. James 4, 7 to 10. It's been said that the best things in life are free. That may be true. But it's also true that the best things in life are the most costly. The love of my wife and children, for example. It's not purchased. It's freely given to me, whether I'm rich or poor. And yet there is nothing more costly to me, nothing that changes my life more, nothing that makes greater demands on me, nothing that brings more awesome responsibility to me than the love of my family. In a similar way, the freedoms which we enjoy in this land cannot be bought. They are given, they are guaranteed by our Constitution to be given freely without regard to class or color, race or ability to pay. Yet those freedoms do not come without some cost, some responsibility. They must be maintained by a corporate vigilance against injustice and tyranny. They must be defended when threatened, even at the cost of our lives. They cannot be taken for granted, though they're given freely. Well, last week we ended our study with this glorious truth that God freely graciously restores the broken. Oh, this is the good news. God does not give us what we deserve. He doesn't pay us what we earn. He doesn't leave us in the mess of our own making, but God restores our soul. He graciously forgives and renews those who are broken and humbled without any hope. That's grace. It's free. You can't purchase it. Christ already did by his death on the cross in our place. But as in so many other areas, God's grace, though absolutely free, brings an awesome responsibility. Grace demands a response. And that's the subject of our text this morning. The response, the cost, that this free grace demands of us. Well, let me read the text, verse 7 to 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve. Mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now this is an interesting text. This text, which describes the response which, God, which God's grace demands of us, this text contains no less than ten commands. Not the Ten Commandments, but ten commands for you grammarians. Ten aorist imperatives. You must do this. 
Sound like a bunch of military orders. Do this, do that, do that, do this, go here, do this. That's what the text is, 10 of them in a row. For the sake of simplifying our discussion, I've learned that 10-point sermons don't go over very well. We'll group them together into three commands, three kind of groups of commands. First one's this, give allegiance to God. In light of God's grace, give allegiance to God. Every, high, every school kid knows about allegiance, but they think that that's a noun, a pledge of allegiance. I mean, they think that it's a title, a pledge of allegiance. Well, yeah, it could be the pledge of allegiance, a pledge that is a promise to give allegiance, to obey, to be loyal to. Something every kid learns in school. Loyalty, the pledge of loyalty. Well, that's what this text is saying. We're commanded to pledge our loyalty, to maintain allegiance to God because of his grace that he's given to us. Now, that's what we read in verse 7. Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil. This verse actually talks about allegiance in two different ways. We're to submit to God, be loyal to him, give allegiance to him. Now the word submit may throw us off a little bit. It seems like kind of a passive word that we just kind of submit, we kind of give in and give up, we become passive. Well, in a sense we are, in that we're giving in, but we're called to give in, to be very careful who we give in to. Because who we give in to, who we submit to, determines who our, where our allegiance is. I remember years ago when I was flying fighters in the Air Force, they sent us through survival school, and one of the things they were trying to teach us is how to respond. We're taking prisoners of war. This is back during the Vietnam days. And the key thing there was in this situation where you're so helpless and somebody else is calling all the shots, that you never forget which side you're on. You never stop resisting. You never just submit to the enemy, because in your heart your allegiance belongs back home. And so while you have hardly any options and they hold all the cards, yet you must continually guard your heart to submit only to your lawful orders, not to the enemy's pressure. And that's, that's the point here. Concerning our allegiance to Jesus, we are to submit to him and only to him. No matter how the enemy might entice us, no matter how much pressure the enemy might bring upon us, no matter how we might be urged to give in, no. My allegiance belongs to Christ. I will submit to him. He is my king. He is my sovereign. If no one else in the whole world knows it, he is my sovereign, and I submit to him. Of course, the other side, as we've just already indicated, the other side of submission to, to, the, to the Lord is to resist his enemy, to resist the devil, which is also said there in verse 7. Do not submit. Do not give in to him. We no longer have to, you know. You don't have to give in to Satan. You don't have to give in to sin. Jack Miller in his book, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, discusses this change of allegiance from the devil to Christ. Interesting little paragraph. Let me read. Legally, Jesus won the victory through his obedient life and death on the cross. 
He canceled the debt incurred by our sin, and with that legal stroke, he officially destroyed Satan's authority. Now, Satan still blinds and binds nations, but his work is now illegal. It's, it's a guerrilla-style operation. The people are no longer under the authority of the evil one, but under the authority of the Son of God, who requires that they submit to his rule speedily, lest he burn them up like chaff at his coming. Well, that's James's point, exactly. Here is Satan barking commands at us, enticing us through all kinds of things, calling us to listen and submit and walk in his ways according to his rules. And here we are, knowing the grace that has come in Jesus, that maybe is very quiet and maybe isn't barking in our face. To whom do we give allegiance? To whom do we submit? And James says you need to remember that, our gra- that God's grace demands that we submit ourselves, that we maintain allegiance to Christ, and that no matter what the cost and no matter how loud and no matter how persuasive and no matter how seductive, we resist the illegal, unlawful commands of Satan. He has no right anymore. Christ the King has all the throne rights. Started reading Genesis this week. I read of God's great acts of creation. I read of how he made man in his own image. How he planted a beautiful garden for man to live in. Gave him a perfect place to live. He read how God saw Adam's loneliness and gave him a wife to love and to cherish. God just did nothing but good for Adam. But the day came that Eve, his wife, listened to the serpent and disobeyed God. And at that, day, that point, Adam had a hard choice to make. Would he submit to God? and maintain his allegiance to God? Or would he go along with the wife who he loved so much and couldn't live without? What a choice. But there's no sitting on the fence. He has to do one or the other. If he submits to Eve, he does so at the cost of abandoning his allegiance to Christ. And yet if he is going to maintain his allegiance to Christ and submit himself to what God said, he must resist his wife who he loves so dearly. Didn't say this was easy. You know how that turned out. He couldn't resist his love for his wife. even at the cost of breaking allegiance with God. I have to press this point with you, folks. See, I suspect everyone in this room claims to know the grace of God that's come in Christ. Claims to know God. 
And I'm sure that you are all grateful as I am at the thought that God will forgive our sins and does not give us the punishment we deserve. Some of you have known special examples of his care at times when you were frankly at the end of your rope. But in reality, when the chips are down, where's your allegiance? To whom will you give your heart? You can't just accept God's benefits. But when it comes to submitting to his word, waffle. And say, no, I'll do something else. You cannot continue to enjoy his good gifts. But then when enticed, even by someone as close to you as your spouse, that you'll turn your back on allegiance to Christ in order to maintain your allegiance to someone else you love. What kind of response does grace demand? It demands, it demands unwavering allegiance to Christ. Second truth. Because of the grace of God, cultivate God's friendship. Give allegiance to God. Secondly, cultivate God's friendship. You know, friends are just wonderful, wonderful uh, gifts from God. And the loss of a good friendship is profoundly sad. I'm sure some of you have experienced it. Someone you love dearly moved halfway across the country, and the friendship's just lost. I mean, you can get Christmas cards or something, but it's not the same. Or, or an old friend that you've known since school days gets married, and the spouses don't get along, and the hardcore reality is you're ways just part and the friendship is lost. Or worse yet, something comes or some sin, something happens between you and your friend and it never recovers. The close friendship is broken and wounded. Imagine if our friendship with God is lost. We know the pain of losing human friendship. What about the loss of friendship with God? That's what happened when sin entered the world. As I read, as I was telling you in the early pages there of Genesis, I came to Adam and Eve's fall into sin right after what I just was telling you. And there I read these most terrible words. Listen to these words. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. The Lord, who had done only good to them. The Lord, who had lavished every possible thing on them. The Lord who had given them a perfect place to live. The Lord who had heard their, their cry of loneliness, Adam's cry, and had given him a wife. The Lord who had done nothing but good, never harmed him, never failed him. They hid from him. 
from the one who's the source of every goodness, they hid from him. That's what sin does. It breaks the relationship. It alienates us from God and it alienates God from us. We saw that back in verse 4 last week. Friendship with the world makes us enemies of God. Now the good news of the gospel, the good news of grace, is that in Jesus, God has come near to change that, to reconcile us to himself. A lot of examples of how it's said in the New Testament, Ephesians 2 says that Christ came proclaiming peace to those of us who were far away so that we might have access to the Father. Restored us. Hebrews 10 says that by his blood, by his death on the cross, Jesus has opened the way for us to draw near to God. Reconciled, you see? Relationship reestablished. Colossians 2 says that by his death on the cross, Christ canceled out our bad record. It's as if he took our record of all of our guilt and it hammered it up on the cross and said it's paid for now. God has cleared all the obstacles. God has graciously restored us. He's reconciled us to himself. He's turned away his alienation uh, from us, and, 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 and he's, he's brought us close to himself. Now what do we do? How do we respond to that grace? Well, this text says, cultivate that friendship, which he has restored. Cultivate that friendship. It's a command of verse 8. Come near to God. Come near Oh, he's not asking us to reconcile ourselves. We could never do that. Only Jesus could reconcile us. We could never pay the price. Oh, he's speaking to those who have been recipients of that grace. He says, now, I want this response from you. I want you to come near. I want you to cultivate my friendship. Now, how do you do that? How do you cultivate friendship with God? Well, I don't think it's so hard as we might think. How do we cultivate anyone's friendship? Maybe we can apply the same principles to our relationship to God that's been restored. How do you cultivate a friendship? Well, first of all, it takes time. You can say that you're friends with someone. You can genuinely want to be friends with someone. You may have been friends with someone, but I promise you, if you do not find time for your friend, the friendship will not continue. I suspect we all know examples of people who just don't have time to be our friends anymore. I fear that I'm one of those people who doesn't have time to be friends with my friend. Would you be embarrassed to have it brought up how little time you had to cultivate your friendship with the Lord this week? If this is like the average church, there are some people that this hour is the only hour out of 168 this week that you cultivated that friendship. And I suspect the best of us, the most careful of us, maybe might spend an hour in a day. 
But the principle doesn't change. If you want to know Christ, if you want to cultivate your relationship to Christ, it's going to take time. And you say, I don't have any time. Exactly. You do not have any time. We all have the same amount. And you make priorities. You make decisions. You have to take time from something that's less than Christ to give it to him. Some good thing. Some important thing. If you're going to cultivate friendship with God, you have to find time. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. Come close to me, God says. Cultivate my friendship. Well, then friendship also involves not just time, it involves interest. You know, some people are easy to be friends with because we just are interested in all the same things. But there are other people, some friends that I have, that I want to be friends with, and I value their friendship, but frankly, they're not interested in the same things I'm interested in. And so if I'm going to be their friend, I have to get interested in what they're interested in, and I have to pay attention to things that I don't normally pay attention to. So do you you care enough about cultivating your relationship to the Lord to pursue the things that matter to Him? Even if they don't naturally matter to you? Interestingly, that's what we expect him to do for us. We pour out our hearts to him and we expect him to just be listening and to be, be, just be concerned about every little petty detail of our life and how he might help us. And yet if he calls us to something, we say, I'm not interested in that. Hmm. No, it takes time. It takes an adjustment of our interest. Friendship also takes some perseverance. In the best of friendships, everything is not perfect. There's always misunderstanding. There are always things with which you disagree. There are always things that arise to strain relationships to the breaking point. But true friends persevere through those things. That's what makes those friendships so special. In fact, I'd have to say that my very best friends in the world are also the people who have offended me most deeply and who I've had to put up with the hardest. (laughs) We're called to cultivate God's friendship. and God will never sin against us and God will never betray us like sometimes our friends might do. But there will be plenty of things about God that you don't understand. There will be plenty of things that he does that don't make any sense to you so that it's hard to continue. And yet if we know his grace, we persevere in cultivating his friendship. Oh, and listen to the promise that's recorded in verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Easy to draw near to God when we feel him close. Easy to to cultivate his friendship when we're conscious of his presence. But here we're called to, commanded to pursue him, pursue knowing him, even when we don't feel like it at all. But to that command, he attaches this promise that he too will draw near to us. Because of the grace of God, cultivate his friendship. You know, the Apostle Paul, one of the verses in the Bible that is just one of my very favorites. In Philippians 3.10, the Apostle Paul says, you know, 
after everything else and above everything else, I want to know Christ. Did he not know Christ? Of course he knew Christ. He knew the grace of God that had been poured out. He wrote about it. He explained it. He taught it. See, he's not talking about being saved. He's not talking about coming to know God's forgiveness and reconciliation. That he knew in Christ. He's talking about cultivating God's friendship. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know what it is to, to, to share in his suffering, to know the fellowship of his dying. I want to know him. Is that your heart? That's the proper response to grace, to cultivate the friendship of God. Well, one more set of commands as God instructs us how to respond to his grace. I'll group them together with just a simple little instruction. Pursue purity. What's the proper response to God's grace? That we pursue purity. Have you ever known someone, a set of parents, some of you might be this set of parents, uh, but we probably have all known, they have a son or a daughter who gets in trouble with drugs, and then gets in trouble with the law. Every case I've ever known of that, I, I see it just wears the parents out. The, the, the kid gets in trouble and the parents try to figure out a way to help. And they no more than bail him out and he gets in trouble again. And it gets more costly, but they try to help him because they love him so. So at greater expense, they find a way to help, and he gets in trouble again, and on and on the vicious cycle goes. They give, and they give, and they forgive, and they forgive, and they restore, and they restore, only to see the son or daughter, go right back into the same lifestyle the minute they hit the street. And it breaks your heart, even to watch it, let alone be the parent. But did you ever think that sometimes we treat God like that? We seem to feel it's his responsibility to forgive our sins and get us out of the trouble that we caused ourselves. To take away the consequences of all of our wicked choices. And then we feel like we're free to just go on, do the same things more. Keep on sinning. And he forgives us again. And he restores our soul. And he picks us up. And we do it again. Are we so ignorant to think that God who hated sin enough that he would pour out his own wrath on his precious son because he bore our sins? Are we so ignorant as to think that that God doesn't care whether we keep going back into the pit again? 
uses some really pointed illustrations. He says, you like dogs that return to your vomit? You're like a pig that just goes right back to, the, to wallow in the mud? Do we honestly think God doesn't care? If we just keep on sinning, he'll keep on forgiving? While we claim to know his grace? Oh no. Having received God's grace, we must pursue purity. Well, I'm not saying we can earn his grace by being clean enough. You can't do that. But his grace that cleanses us and makes us new demands of us that we stop sinning. Now this passage says that in a lot of different ways. Let me read again the end of verse 8 and verse 9. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy gloom. I think there are three levels of pursuing purity that we see there. First of all, God calls us to purify our actions. That's what the verse 8 saying. Wash your hands, you sinners. He's saying stop sinning. Stop using your hands or any of your other members, your feet or your mouth or your eyes. Stop using your members to do acts of disobedience. But folks, this is not optional. This is the proper response to God's grace. If we do not see changes in our actions as a result of our salvation, we might think again about how real our salvation really is. For those who believe that Jesus is Lord will begin to follow and obey him. Jesus himself presses that point. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you won't do what I say? Now I have to warn you about this. There is around us, it's everywhere around us, a pseudo-Christianity, a false Christianity that says you can believe in Jesus and have all of the benefits of his grace and just keep on doing what you please. It doesn't matter. That's not true. That's heresy. That's false religion. Pseudo-Christianity. God's grace demands that we stop sinning. Then God goes on. Not just purify your hands. He says purify your hearts. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, he says at the end of verse 8. See, it's not just our actions that need to be addressed. He says that in your hearts there's a double-mindedness. That means that you're loving the world and loving God at the same time. You can't do it. Jesus himself said, you can't serve two masters. You can't love God and mammon. You can't do it. There's going to come a division. You're going to go one way or the other. And that's what James is saying here. It's what the Holy Spirit is saying you can't continue this double-minded, double-hearted, love two masters at the same time kind of living. No. 
This is a struggle which doesn't go away, but this is something we have to face. The desires within us that want to draw our hearts away from our love for the Lord. But God says, no, I want your heart. Do you ever think the first commandment, the greatest commandment, is not about your actions at all, it's about your heart. You know the first commandment, right? You will serve the Lord with, oh no. You will love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pursue purity, not just in your actions, in your heart. And then finally we're called to pursue purity in our thinking, to change our minds towards sin. Verse 9, let me read again. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your, glow, your joy to gloom. When I read this, I'm reminded of, um, I don't want to bust on my kids too much. I can use them as... And use Nathan as an illustration because he's not here, but I'm reminded of Nathan sometimes. When, you, uh, when I tried to discipline him, and, um, and he's laughing it off. You ever have that experience with your kid? I mean, you're dead serious. You are really upset. And they're laughing. They're too cute to take you seriously. They're too cool to bother with what you're telling them. When I did that with my dad, I would hear something like, you better wipe that smirk off your face, young man. I probably said that same exact line to my son. I think here God's saying that to us. He's not saying we ought to live a monastic life with no joy and only gloom. No, we're called again and again repeatedly to, to rejoice, to shout for joy in a Christian life. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, among other things. There's a time for us to get dead serious about how our thinking has gone wrong. And he says, you need to get serious about your thinking in regard to sin. I think that this verse where it's calling us to grieve and mourn and wail and change our laughter in the morning, I think that's exactly the same thing that we see going on in Revelation chapter 3 where the risen Jesus addresses the church in Laodicea who thinks they're so cool and misses the fact that they're so wretched. Listen to what he says. He says, you say, just Jesus talking to his church, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door knocking. And what's he calling them to? He's calling them to get off their high horse, to get rid of this thinking that I'm so cool, I'm so rich, I've got it together, and to realize that the living Christ is here knocking and we're ignoring him. So you need to realize you're a mess. You're pitiful. Or as my father would say, wipe that smirk off your face. I'm talking to you. Pursue purity in your mind, in our thinking, that we grieve over sin rather than 
laugh it off. Well, this morning I remind you, God's just not, God not, is not just concerned about our legal pure standing. God accomplishes legal purity for us in an instant when we're justified in the courts of heaven. He declares us to be righteous. But he's also concerned that we be living out that new status that he's given us by his grace. He's concerned to purge every vestige of sin from us. Every place that we love the world. Every selfish fleshly desire. Every little habit that perpetuates our sin in us. Even the smallest little doses of sin. God says, I want it out of there. I've called you to be holy. Like I'm holy. And I won't settle for Pursue purity. God's grace demands it. Grace demands a response. Best things in life are free? Yes, they sure are. God's grace is free. Don't you ever get the idea that I'm saying something else. But this most precious gift demands our life our heart, our all. What's the response to the grace that God outlines for us? Give allegiance to him. That means resisting everything that's opposed to him and maintaining loyalty to Christ. Cultivate God's friendship. It's not enough to just be saved and legally reconciled. He says, I want you to know me and walk with me. And pursue purity. God didn't just save us from the guilt and punishment of sin, folks. He saved us from sin. And in conclusion, there's another way that we might see this whole section. We might also see that here, the way up is the way down. The way up is the road down. What we've outlined here is the way of humility, humbling ourselves before the Lord. That's what verse 6 called us to at the last, end of last week's sermon. God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And now listen to the promise of verse 10 at the end of this week's text. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The way of humility is the way of exaltation. The way of greatness is the way of humiliation. That's been the promise throughout all these verses. Submit to God in loyal allegiance. Resist Satan. And what happens? Satan will flee. Draw near to God. Cultivate his friendship. And he draws near to you. Humble yourselves before God, and he will exalt you. See, the way of humility is a way of exaltation. The road down is the way up. The benefits follow the obedience, which is the proper response to God's grace 
held out to us in the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your great grace to us. And Lord, I pray that even in all that we've said this morning, that not one person would get the wrong idea that we could ever contribute one little iota of merit to our salvation. Oh Lord, we rest on Jesus. We have no one but you. We cannot earn your gift of salvation. We receive it freely. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear your word. That your intention is not to just deliver us from the consequences of our sin. Your intention is to make us a new people who are holy like you are, who walk with you, who are the friend of God. Lord, a people that look like you, people who, in whom the world can see you, oh Lord, may we realize that you've called us to yourself. So grant to us, Lord, the grace not just of forgiveness and salvation, but the grace of holiness and sanctification. We ask it in the dear name of our Savior. Amen.